Welcome to the Resilient Mind Podcast. We strive to empower people all over the world with information so they can strengthen their mind and thrive during difficult times. If you would like to contribute to our mission, you can subscribe or support through the link in the show notes. In this episode, you will be listening to The Master Key System with Charles Honnell. Enjoy. Some men seem to attract success, power, wealth, attainment with very little conscious effort. Others conquer with great difficulty. Still others fail altogether to reach their ambitions, desires, and ideals. Why is this so? Why should some men realize their ambitions easily, others with difficulty, and still others not at all? The cause cannot be physical, else the most perfect men physically would be the most successful. The difference, therefore, must be mental, must be in the mind, hence mind must be the creative force, must constitute the sole difference between men. It is mind, therefore, which overcomes environment and every other obstacle in the path of man. When the creative power of thought is fully understood, its effect will be seen to be marvelous. But such results cannot be secured without proper application, diligence, and concentration. The student will find that the laws governing in the mental and spiritual world are as fixed and infallible as in the material world. To secure the desired results, then, it is necessary to know the law and to comply with it. A proper compliance with the law will be found to produce the desired result with invariable exactitude. The student who learns that power comes from within, that he is weak only because he has depended on help from the outside, and who unhesitatingly throws himself on his own thought, instantly rights himself, stands erect, assumes a dominant attitude, and works miracles. It is evident, therefore, that he who fails to fully investigate and take advantage of the wonderful progress which is being made in this last and greatest science will soon be as far behind as the man who would refuse to acknowledge and accept the benefit which have accrued to mankind through an understanding of the laws of electricity. Of course, mind creates negative conditions just as readily as favorable conditions, and when we consciously or unconsciously visualize every kind of lack, limitation, and discord, we create these conditions. This is what many are unconsciously doing all of the time. This law, as well as every other law, is no respecter of persons, but is in constant operation and is relentlessly bringing to each individual exactly what he has created. In other words, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Abundance, therefore, depends upon a recognition of the laws of abundance, and the fact that mind is not only the creator, but the only creator of all there is. Certainly nothing can be created before we know that it can be created and then make the proper effort. There is no more electricity in the world today than there was 50 years ago. But until someone recognized the law by which it could be made of service, we received no benefit. Now that the law is understood, practically the whole world is lit by it. So with the law of abundance, it is only those who recognize the law and place themselves in harmony with it who share in its benefits. The scientific spirit now dominates every field of effort, relations of cause and effect are no longer ignored. The discovery of a region of law marked an epoch in human progress. It eliminated the element of uncertainty and caprice men's lives, and substituted law, reason, and certitude. Men now understand that for every result there is an adequate and definite cause, so that when a given result is desired, they seek the condition by which alone this result may be attained. The basis upon which all law rests was discovered by inductive reasoning, which consists of comparing a number of separate instances with one another until the common factor which gives rise to them all is seen. 
It is the method of study to which the civilized nations owe the greater part of their prosperity and the more valuable part of their knowledge. It has lengthened life. It has mitigated pain. It has spanned rivers. It has brightened the night with the splendor of day. It's extended the range of vision, accelerated motion, annihilated distance, facilitated intercourse, and enabled men to descend into the sea and into the air. What wonder, then, that men soon endeavored to extend the blessing of this system of study to their method of thinking, so that when it became plainly evident that certain results followed a particular method of thinking, it only remained to classify these results. This is method, and it's scientific and it is the only method by which we shall be permitted to retain that degree of liberty and freedom which we have been accustomed to look upon as an inalienable right, because a people is safe at home and in the world only if national preparedness means such things as growing surpluses of health, accumulated efficiency in public and private business of whatever sort, continuous advance in the science and art of acting together, and the increasingly dominant endeavor to make all of these and all other aspects of national development centers and revolve about ascending life, single and collective, for which science, art, and ethics furnish guidance and controlling motives. The master key is based on absolute scientific truth and will unfold the possibilities that lie dormant in the individual and teach how they may be brought into powerful action to increase the person's effective capacity, bringing added energy, discernment, vigor, and mental elasticity. The student who gains an understanding of the mental laws which re-unfolded will come into the possession of an ability to secure results hitherto undreamed of and which has rewards hardly to be expressed in words. It explains the correct use of both the receptive and active elements of the mental nature and instructs the students in the recognition of opportunity. It strengthens the will and reasoning powers and teaches the cultivation and best uses of imagination, desire, the emotion. It gives initiative, tenacity of purpose, wisdom of choice, intelligent sympathy, and a thorough enjoyment of life on its higher planes. The master key teaches the use of mind power, true mind power, not any of the substitutes and perversions. It has nothing to do with hypnotism, magic, or any of the more or less fascinating deceptions by which many are led to think that something can be had for nothing. The master key cultivates and develops the understanding which will enable you to control the body and thereby the health. It improves and strengthens the memory. It develops insight, the kind of insight which is so rare, the kind which is the distinguishing characteristic of every successful businessman, the kind which enables men to discern opportunity close at hand. For thousands fail to see the opportunities almost within their grasp while they are industriously working with situations which under no possibility can be made to realize any substantial return. The master key develops mental power, which means that others instinctively recognize that you are a person of force, of character, that they want to do what you want them to do. It means that you attract men and things to you, that you are what some people call lucky, and that things just come your way, that you have come into an understanding of the fundamental laws of nature and have put yourself in harmony with them, that you are in tune with the infinite, that you understand the law of attraction, the natural laws of growth, and the psychological laws on which all advantages in the social and business world rest. Mental power is creative power. It gives you the ability to create for yourself. It does not mean the ability to take something away from someone else. Nature never does things that way. Nature makes two blades for grass grow wherever one grew before, and mind power enables men to do the same thing. The master key develops insight and sagacity, increased independence, the ability and disposition to be helpful. 
It destroys distrust, depression, fear, melancholia, and every form of lack, limitation, and weakness. That includes pain and disease. It awakens buried talents, supplies initiative, force, energy, and vitality. It awakens an appreciation of the beautiful in art, literature, and in science. It has changed the lives of thousands of men and women by substituting definite principles for uncertain and hazy methods, and principles for the foundation upon which every system of efficiency must rest. Albert Gary, the chairman of the United States Steel Corporation, said, The services of advisors, instructors, efficiency experts in successful management are indispensable to most business enterprises of magnitude, but I deem the recognition and adoption of right principles vastly more important. The master key teaches right principles and suggests methods for making a practical application of those very same principles. In that it differs from every other course of study, it teaches that the only possible value which can attach to any principle is in its application. Many read books, take home study courses, attend lectures all of their lives without ever making any progress in demonstrating the value of the principles involved. The master key suggests methods by which the value of the principles taught may be demonstrated and put in actual practice in the daily experience. There is a change in the thought of the world. This change is silently transpiring in our midst and is more important than any which the world has undergone since the downfall of paganism. Science has of late made such vast discoveries, has revealed such an infinity of resources, has unveiled such enormous possibilities and such unsuspected forces that scientific men more and more hesitate to affirm certain theories as established and indubitably or to deny certain other theories as absurd or impossible. And so a new civilization is being born. Customs, creeds, and cruelty are passing. Vision, faith, and service are taking their place. The fetters of tradition are being melted off from humanity. And as the dross of materialism is being consumed, thought is being liberated, and truth is rising full-orbed before an astonished multitude. The whole world is on the eve of a new consciousness, a new power, and a new consciousness, a new power, a new realization of the resources within itself. The last century saw the most magnificent material progress in history. The present century will produce the greatest progress in mental and spiritual power. Physical science has resolved matter into molecules, molecules into atoms, and atoms into energy. And it has remained for Sir Ambrose Fleming in an address before the Royal Institution to resolve this energy into mind. He says, in its ultimate essence, energy may be incomprehensible by us, except as an exhibition of the direct operation of that which we call mind or will. Now let's see what are the most powerful forces in nature. In the mineral world, everything is solid and fixed. In the animal and vegetable kingdom, it's in a state of flux, forever changing, always being created and recreated. In the atmosphere, we find heat, light, and energy. Each realm becomes finer and more spiritual as we pass from the visible to the invisible, from the coarse to the fine, from the low potentiality to high potential. When we reach the invisible, we find energy in its purest and most volatile state. And as the most powerful forces of nature are the invisible forces, so we find that the most powerful forces of man are his invisible forces, his spiritual force. And the only way in which the spiritual force can manifest is through the process of thinking. Thinking is the only activity which the spirit possesses, and thought is the only product of thinking. Addition and subtraction are therefore a spiritual transaction. Reasoning is a spiritual process. Ideas are spiritual conceptions. Questions are spiritual searchlights. And logic 
argument, and philosophy is spiritual machinery. Every thought brings into action certain physical tissue, parts of the brain, nerve, or muscle. This produces an actual physical change in the construction of the tissue. Therefore, it is only necessary to have a certain number of thoughts on a given subject in order to bring about a complete change in the physical organization of a man. This is the process by which failure is changed to success. Thoughts of courage, power, inspiration, harmony are substituted for thoughts of failure, despair, lack, limitation, and discord. And as these thoughts take root, the physical tissue is changed and the individual sees life in a new light. Old things have actually passed away. All things have become new. He is born again, this time born of the Spirit. Life has a new meaning for him. He is reconstructed and is filled with joy, confidence, hope, and energy. He sees opportunities to success to which he was heretofore blind. He recognizes possibilities which before had no meaning for him. The thought of success with which he has been impregnated are radiated to those around him, and they in turn help him onward and upward. He attracts to him new and successful associates, and this in turn changes his environment, so that by this simple exercise of thought, a man changes not only himself, but his environment, circumstances, and conditions. You will see, you must see, that we are at the dawn of a new day, that the possibilities are so wonderful, so fascinating, and so limitless as to be almost bewildering. A century ago, any man with an airplane or even a Gatling gun could have annihilated a whole army equipped with the implements of warfare then in use. And so it is at present. Any man with a knowledge of the possibilities contained in the master key has an inconceivable advantage over the multitude. Nature compels us all to move through life. We could not remain stationary however much we wished. Every right-thinking person wants not merely to move through life like a sound-producing, perambulating plant, but to develop, to improve, and to continue the development mentally to the close of physical life. This development can occur only through the improvement of the quality of individual thought and the ideals, actions, and conditions that arise as a consequent. Hence, a study of the creative processes of thought and how to apply them is of supreme importance to each one of us. This knowledge is the means whereby the evolution of human life on earth may be hastened and uplifted in the process. Humanity ardently seeks the truth and explores every avenue to it. In this process, it has produced a special literature which ranges the whole gamut of thought from the trivial to the sublime, up from divination through all the philosophies to the final lofty truth of the master key. The master key is here given to the world as a means of tapping the great cosmic intelligence and attracting from it that which corresponds to the ambitions and aspirations of each reader. Everything and institution we see around us, created by human agency, had first to exist as a thought in some human mind. Thought, therefore, is constructive. Human thought is the spiritual power of the cosmos operating through its creature man. The master key instructs the reader how to use that power and use it both constructively and creatively. The things and conditions we desire to become realities we must first create in thought. The master key explains and guides the process. The master key teaching has hitherto been published in the form of a correspondence course of 24 lessons delivered to students one per week for 24 weeks. The reader who now receives the whole 24 parts at one time is warned not to attempt to read the book like a novel, but to treat it as a course of study and conscientiously to imbibe the meaning of each part. 
reading and rereading one part only per week before proceeding to the next. Otherwise, the latter parts will tend to be misunderstood and the reader's time and money will be wasted. Used as thus instructed, the master key will make of the reader a greater, better personality and equipped with a new power to achieve any worthy personal purpose and a new ability to enjoy life's beauty and wonder. Introduction by F. H. Burgess The Master Key System It is my privilege to enclose herewith Part 1 of The Master Key System. Would you bring into your life more power to get the power consciousness, more health to get the health consciousness, more happiness, get the happiness consciousness, Live the spirit of these things until they become yours by right. It will then become impossible to keep them from you. The things of the world are fluid to a power within man by which he rules them. You need not acquire this power. You already have it. But you want to understand it. You want to use it. You want to control it. You want to impregnate yourself with it so that you can go forward and carry the world before you. Day by day as you go on and on and as you gain momentum, as your inspiration deepens, as your plans crystallize, as you gain understanding, you'll come to realize that this world is no dead pile of stones and timber, but it is a living thing. It's made up of the beating hearts of humanity. It is a thing of life and beauty. It is evident that it requires understanding to work with material of this description, but those who come into this understanding are inspired by a new light, a new force. They gain confidence and greater power each day. They realize their hopes and their dreams come true. Life has a deeper, fuller, clearer meaning than ever before. And now, Part 1. Chapter 1. That much gathers more is true on every plane of existence, and that loss leads to greater loss is equally true. Mind is creative, and conditions, environment, and all experiences in life are the result of our habitual or predominant mental attitude. The attitude of mind necessarily depends upon what we think. Therefore, the secret of all power, all achievement, and all possession depends upon our method of thinking. This is true because we must be before we can do, and we can do only to the extent which we are, and what we are depends upon what we think. We cannot express powers that we do not possess. The only way by which we may secure possession of power is to become conscious of power, and we can never become conscious of power until we learn that all power is from within. There is a world within, a world of thought and feeling and power, of light and life and beauty, and although invisible, its forces are mighty. The world within is governed by mind. When we discover this world, we shall find the solution for every problem, the cause for every effect, and since the world within is subject to our control, all laws of power and possessions are also within our control. The world without is a reflection of the world within. What appears without is what has been found within. In the world within may be found infinite wisdom, infinite power, infinite supply of all that is necessary waiting for unfoldment, development, and expression. If we recognize these potentialities in the world within, they will take form in the world without. Harmony in the world within will be reflected in the world without by harmonious conditions, agreeable surroundings, the best of everything. It's the foundation of health and a necessary essential to all greatness, all power, all attainment, all achievement, and all success. Harmony in the world within means the ability to control our thoughts and 
to determine for ourselves how any experience is to affect us. Harmony in the world within results in optimism and affluence. Affluence within results in affluence without. The world without reflects the circumstances and the conditions of the consciousness within. If we find wisdom in the world within, we shall have the understanding to discern the marvelous possibilities that are latent in the world within, and we shall be given the power to make these possibilities manifest in the world without. As we become conscious of the wisdom in the world within, we mentally take possession of this wisdom, and by taking mental possession, we come into actual possession of the power and wisdom necessary to bring into manifestation the essentials necessary for our most complete and harmonious development. The world within is the practical world in which the men and women of power generate courage, hope, enthusiasm, confidence, trust, and faith by which they are given the fine intelligence to see the vision and the practical skill to make that vision real. Life is an unfoldment, not accretion. What comes to us in the world without is what we already possess in the world within. All possession is based on consciousness. All gain is the result of an accumulative consciousness. All loss is the result of a scattering consciousness. Mental efficiency is contingent upon harmony. Discord means confusion. Therefore, he who would acquire power must be in harmony with natural law. We are related to the world without by the objective mind. The brain is the organ of this mind, and the cerebrospinal system of nerves puts us in conscious communication with every part of the body. This system of nerves responds to every sensation of light, heat, odor, sound, and taste. When this mind thinks correctly, when it understands the truth, when the thoughts sent through the cerebrospinal nervous system to the body are constructive, these sensations are pleasant and harmonious. The result is that we build strength, vitality, and all constructive forces into our body, but it is through this same objective mind that all distress, sickness, lack, limitation, and every form of discord and inharmony is admitted into our lives. It is therefore through the objective mind by wrong thinking that we are related to all destructive forces. We are related to the world within by the subconscious mind. The solar plexus is the organ of this mind. The sympathetic system of nerves presides over all subjective sensations, such as joy, fear, love, emotion, respiration, imagination, and all other subconscious phenomena. It is through the subconscious that we are connected with the universal mind and brought into relation with the infinite constructive forces of the universe. It is the coordination of these two centers of our being and the understanding of their functions which is the great secret of life. With this knowledge, we can bring the objective and subjective minds into conscious cooperation and thus coordinate the finite and the infinite. Our future is entirely within our own control. It is not at the mercy of any capricious or uncertain external power. Now all agree that there is but one principle or consciousness pervading the entire universe, occupying all space, and being essentially the same in kind at every point of its presence. It is all-powerful, all wisdom and always present. All thoughts and things are within itself. It is all in all. There is but one consciousness in the universe able to think, and when it thinks, its thoughts become objective things to do. As this consciousness is omnipresent, it must be present within every individual. Each individual must be a manifestation 
of that omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent consciousness. As there is only one consciousness in the universe that is able to think it, necessarily follows that your consciousness is identical with the universal consciousness, or in other words, all mind is one mind. There is no dodging this conclusion. The consciousness that focuses in your brain cells is the same consciousness which focuses in the brain cells of every other individual. Each individual is but the individualization of the universal, the cosmic mind. The universal mind is static or potential energy. It simply is. It can manifest only through the individual, and the individual can manifest only through the universal. They are one. The ability of the individual to think is his ability to act on the universal and bring it into manifestation. Human consciousness consists only in the ability of man to think. Mind in and of itself is believed to be a subtle form of static energy from which arises the activities called thought, which is the dynamic phase of mind. Mind is static energy. Thought is dynamic energy, the two phases of the same thing. Thought is therefore the vibratory force formed by converting static mind into dynamic mind. As the sum of all attributes are contained in the universal mind, which is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, these attributes must be present at all times in their potential form in every individual. Therefore, when the individual thinks, the thought is compelled by its nature to embody itself in an objectivity or condition which will correspond with its origin. Every thought, therefore, is a cause and every condition an effect. For this reason, it is absolutely essential that you control your thoughts so as to bring forth only desirable conditions. All power is from within and is absolutely under your control. It comes through exact knowledge and by the voluntary exercises of exact principles. It should be plain that when you acquire a thorough understanding of this law and are able to control your thought processes, you can apply it to any condition. In other words, you will have come into conscious cooperation with omnipotent law, which is the fundamental basis of all things. The universal mind is the life principle of every atom which is in existence. Every atom is continually striving to manifest more life. All are intelligent, and all are seeking to carry out the purpose for which they were created. A majority of mankind lives in the world without. Few have found the world within, and yet it is the world within that makes the world without. It is therefore creative, and everything which you find in your world without has been created by you in the world within. This system will bring you into a realization of power which will be yours when you understand this relation between the world without and the world within. The world within is the cause, the world without the effect. To change the effect, you must change the cause. You will at once see that this is a radically new and different idea. Most men try to change effects by working with effects. They fail to see that this is simply changing one form of distress for another. To remove discord, we must remove the cause, and this cause can be found only in the world within. All growth is from within. This is evident in all nature. Every plant, every animal, every human is a living testimony to this great law, and the error of the ages is in looking for strength or power from without. The world within is the universal fountain of supply, and the world without is the outlet to the stream. Our ability to receive depends upon our recognition of this universal fountain this infinite energy of which each individual is an outlet, and so is one with every other individual. 
Recognition is a mental process. Mental action is therefore the interaction of the individual upon the universal mind. And as the universal mind is the intelligence which pervades all space and animates all living things, this mental action and reaction is the law of causation. But the principle of causation does not obtain in the individual, but in the universal mind. It is not an objective faculty, but a subjective process. And the results are seen in an infinite variety of conditions and experiences. In order to express life, there must be mind. Nothing can exist without mind. Everything which does exist is some manifestation of this one basic substance from which and by which all things have been created and are continually being recreated. We live in a fathomless sea of plastic mind substance. This substance is ever alive and active. It is sensitive to the highest degree. It takes form according to the mental demand. Thought forms the mold or matrix from which the substance expresses. Remember that it is in the application alone that the value consists, and that a practical understanding of this law will substitute abundance for poverty, wisdom for ignorance, harmony for discord, and freedom for tyranny. And certainly there can be no greater blessing than these from a material and social standpoint. Now make the application. Select a room where you can be alone and undisturbed. Sit erect comfortably, but do not lounge. Let your thoughts roam where they will, but be perfectly still for from 15 minutes to half an hour. Continue this for three days or four days or for a week until you secure full control of your physical being. Many will find this extremely difficult. Others will conquer with ease. But it is absolutely essential to secure complete control of the body before you are ready to progress. Next week, you'll receive instructions for the next step. In the meantime, you must have mastered this one. Our difficulties are largely due to confused ideas and ignorance of our true interests. The great task is to discover the laws of nature to which we are to adjust ourselves. Clear thinking and moral insight are, therefore, of incalculable value. All processes, even those of thought, rest on solid foundations. The keener the sensibilities, the more acute the judgment. The more delicate the taste, the more refined the moral feelings. The more subtle the intelligence, the loftier the aspiration. The purer and more intense are the gratifications which existence yields. Hence, it is that the study of the best that has been thought in the world gives supreme pleasure. The powers, uses, and possibilities of the mind under the new interpretations are incomparably more wonderful than the most extravagant accomplishment or even dreams of material progress. Thought is energy. Active thought is active energy. Concentrated thought is a concentrated energy. Thought concentrated on a definite purpose becomes power. This is the power which is being used by those who do not believe in the virtue of poverty or the beauty of self-denial. They perceive that this is the talk of weaklings. The ability to receive and manifest this power depends upon the ability to recognize the infinite energy ever dwelling in man, constantly creating and recreating his body and mind, and ready at any moment to manifest through him in any needful manner. In exact proportion to the recognition of this truth will be the manifestation in the outer life of the individual. Chapter 2 The operations of the mind are produced by two parallel modes of activity, the one conscious and the other subconscious. Professor Davidson says, quote, He who thinks to illuminate the whole range of mental action by the light of his own consciousness 
is not unlike the one who should go about to illuminate the universe with a rushlight, end quote. The subconscious logical processes are carried on with a certainty and regularity which would be impossible if there existed the possibility of error. Our mind is so designed that it prepares for us the most important foundations of cognition whilst we have not the slightest apprehension of the modus operandi. The subconscious soul, like a benevolent stranger, works and makes provisions for our benefit, pouring only the mature fruit into our lap. Thus, ultimate analysis of thought processes shows that the subconscious is the theater of the most important mental phenomena. It is through the subconscious that Shakespeare must have perceived, without effort, great truths which are hidden from the conscious mind of the student, that Phidias fashioned marble and bronze, that Raphael painted Madonnas and Beethoven composed symphonies. Ease and perfection depend entirely upon the degree in which we cease to depend upon the consciousness, playing the piano, skating, operating the typewriter. The skilled trades depend for their perfect execution on the process of the subconscious mind. The marvel of playing a brilliant piece on the piano, while at the same time conducting a vigorous conversation, shows the greatness of our subconscious powers. We are all aware how dependent we are upon the subconscious, and the greater the nobler the more brilliant our thoughts are, the more it is obvious to ourselves that the origin lies beyond our ken. We find ourselves endowed with tact, instinct, sense of the beautiful in art, music, or whose origin or dwelling place we are wholly unconscious. The values of the subconscious is enormous. It inspires us. It warns us. It furnishes us with names, facts, and scenes from the storehouse of memory. It directs our thoughts, tastes, and accomplishments, and our tasks so intricate that no conscious mind, even if it had the power, has the capacity for. We can walk at will. We can raise the arm whenever we choose to do so. We can give our attention through eye or ear to any subject at pleasure. On the other hand, we cannot stop our heartbeats, nor the circulation of the blood, nor the growth of the stature, nor the formation of nerve and muscle tissue, nor the building of the bones, nor many other important vital processes. If we compare these two sets of action, the one decreed by the will of the moment and the other proceeding in majestic, rhythmic course, subject to no vacillation, but constant at every moment, we stand in awe of the latter, and we ask to have the mystery explained. We see at once that these are the vital processes of our physical life, and we cannot avoid the inference that these all-important functions are designedly withdrawn from the domain of our outward will with its variations and transitions and placed under the direction of a permanent and dependable power within us. Of these two powers, the outward and changeable has been termed the conscious mind or the objective mind dealing with outward objects. The interior power is called the subconscious mind or the subjective mind, and besides its work on the mental plane, it controls the regular functions which make physical life possible. It is necessary to have a clear understanding of their respective functions on the mental plane, as well as of certain other basic principles. Perceiving and operating through the five physical senses, the conscious mind deals with the impressions and objects of the outward life. It has the faculty of discrimination, carrying with it the responsibility of choice, it has the power of reasoning, whether inductive, deductive, analytical, or syllogistic, and this power may be developed to a high degree. It is the seat of the will with all the energies that flow therefrom. Not only can it impress other minds, but it can direct the subconscious mind. 
In this way, the conscious mind becomes the responsible ruler and guardian of the subconscious mind. It is this high function which can completely reverse conditions in your life. It is often true that conditions of fear, worry, poverty, disease, inharmony, and evils of all kinds dominate us by reason of false suggestions accepted by the unguarded subconscious mind. All this the trained conscious mind can entirely prevent by its vigilant, protective action. It may properly be called the watchman at the gate of the great subconscious domain. One writer has expressed the chief distinction between the two phases of mind thus, quote, Conscious mind is reasoning will. Subconscious mind is instinctive desire, the result of past reasoning will. End quote. The subconscious mind draws just and accurate inferences from premises furnished from outside sources. Where the premise is true, the subconscious mind reaches a faultless conclusion. But where the premise or suggestion is an error, the whole structure falls. The subconscious mind does not engage in the process of proving. It relies upon the conscious mind, the watchman at the gate, to guard it from the mistaken impressions. Receiving any suggestion as true, the subconscious mind at once proceeds to act thereon in the whole domain of its tremendous field of work. The conscious mind can suggest either truth or error. If the latter, it is at the cost of wide-reaching peril to the whole being. The conscious mind ought to be on duty during every waking hour. When the watchman is off guard, or when its calm judgment is suspended under a variety of circumstances, then the subconscious mind is unguarded and left open to suggestion from all sources. During the wild excitement of panic, or during the height of anger, or the impulses of the irresponsible mob, or at any other time of unrestrained passion, the conditions are most dangerous. The subconscious mind is then open to the suggestion of fear, hatred, selfishness, greed, self-deprecation, and other negative forces derived from surrounding persons or circumstances. The result is usually unwholesome in the extreme, with effects that may endure to distress it for a long time. Hence the great importance of guarding the subconscious mind from false impressions. The subconscious mind perceives by intuition. Hence its processes are rapid. It does not wait for the slow methods of conscious reasoning. In fact, it cannot employ them. The subconscious mind never sleeps, never rests, any more than does your heart or your blood. It has been found that by plainly stating to the subconscious mind certain specific things to be accomplished, forces are set in operation that lead to the result desired. Here, then, is a source of power which places us in touch with omnipotence. Herein is a deep principle which is well worth our most earnest study. The operation of this law is very interesting. Those who put it into operation find that when they go out to meet the person with whom they anticipate a difficult interview, something has been there before them and dissolved the supposed differences. Everything has changed. All is harmonious. They find that when some difficult business problem presents itself, they can afford to make delay, and something suggests the proper solution. Everything is properly arranged. In fact, those who have learned to trust the subconscious find that they have infinite resources at their command. The subconscious mind is the seat of our principles and our aspirations. It is the fount of our artistic and altruistic ideals. These instincts can only be overthrown by an elaborate and gradual process of undermining the innate principles. The subconscious mind cannot argue controversially. 
Hence, if it has accepted wrong suggestions, the sure method of overcoming them is by the use of a strong counter-suggestion, frequently repeated, which the mind must accept, thus eventually forming new and healthy habits of thought and life. For the subconscious mind is the seat of habit. That which we do over and over becomes mechanical. It is no longer an act of judgment, but has worn its deep grooves into the subconscious mind. This is favorable for us if the habit be wholesome and right. If it be harmful and wrong, the remedy is to recognize the omnipotence of the subconscious mind and suggest present actual freedom. The subconscious, being creative and one with our divine source, will at once create the freedom suggestion. To sum up, the normal functions of the subconscious on the physical side have to do with the regular and vital processes, with the preservation of life and the restoration of health, with the care of offspring, which includes an instinctive desire to preserve all life and improve the conditions generally. On the mental side, it's the storehouse of memory. It harbors the wonderful thought messengers who work unhampered by time or space. It is the fountain of the practical initiative and constructive forces of life. It is the seat of habit. On the spiritual side, it is the source of ideals of aspiration, of the imagination, and is the channel through which we recognize our divine source. And in proportion, as we recognize this divinity, do we come into an understanding of the source of power. Someone may ask, how can the subconscious change conditions? The reply is, because the subconscious is a part of the universal mind, and a part must be the same in kind and quality as the whole. The only difference is one of degree. The whole, as we know, is creative. In fact, it is the only creator there is. Consequently, we find that mind is creative, and as thought is the only activity which the mind possesses, thought must necessarily be creative also. But we shall find that there is a vast difference between simply thinking and directing our thoughts consciously, systematically, and constructively. When we do this, we place our mind in harmony with the universal mind. We come in tune with the infinite. We set in operation the mightiest force in existence, the creative power of the universal mind. This, as in everything else, is governed by natural law, and this law is the law of attraction, which is that mind is creative and will automatically correlate with its object and bring it into manifestation. Now, last time I gave you an exercise for the purpose of securing control of the physical body. If you've accomplished this, you are ready to advance. This time, you'll begin to control your thought. Always take the same room, the same chair, and the same position, if possible. In some cases, it is not convenient to take the same room. In this case, simply make the best use of such conditions as may be available. Now be perfectly still, as before, but inhibit all thought. This will give you control over all thoughts of care, worry, and fear, and will enable you to entertain only the kind of thoughts that you desire. Continue this exercise until you gain complete mastery. You'll not be able to do this for more than a few moments at a time, but the exercise is valuable because it will be a very practical demonstration of the great number of thoughts which are constantly trying to gain access into your mental world. Next time you'll receive instructions for an exercise, which may be a little more interesting, but it is necessary that you master this one first. You have found that the individual may act on the universal, and that the result of this action and interaction is cause and effect. Thought, therefore, is the cause, 
and the experiences with which you meet in life are the effect. Eliminate, therefore, any possible tendency to complain of conditions as they have been or as they are, because it rests with you to change them and make them what you would like them to be. Direct your effort to a realization of the mental resources always at your command from which all real and lasting power comes. Persist in this practice until you come to a realization of the fact that there can be no failure in the accomplishment of any proper object in life if you but understand your power and persist in your object, because the mind forces are ever ready to lend themselves to a purposeful will in the effort to crystallize thought and desire into actions, events, and conditions. Whereas in the beginning of each function of life and each action is the result of conscious thought, the habitual actions become automatic and the thought that controls them passes into the realm of the subconscious. Yet it is just as intelligent as before. It is necessary that it becomes automatic or subconscious in order that the self-conscious mind may attend to other things. The new actions will, however, in their turn, become habitual, then automatic, and then subconscious in order that the mind again may be freed from this detail and advanced to still other activities. When you realize this, you will have found a source of power which will enable you to take care of any situation in life which may develop. And now part three. The necessary interaction of the conscious and subconscious mind requires a similar interaction between the corresponding systems of nerves. Judge Troward indicates the very beautiful method in which this interaction is affected. He says, and I quote, The cerebrospinal system is the organ of the conscious mind, and the sympathetic is the organ of the subconscious. The cerebrospinal is the channel through which we receive conscious perception from the physical senses and exercise control over the movements of the body. This system of nerves has its center in the brain, end quote. The sympathetic system has its center in a ganglionic mass at the back of the stomach known as the solar plexus and is the channel of that mental action which unconsciously supports the vital functions of the body. The connection between the two systems is made by the vagus nerve which passes out of the cerebral region as a portion of the voluntary system to the thorax, sending out branches to the heart and lungs, and finally passing through the diaphragm. It loses its outer coating and becomes identified with the nerves of the sympathetic system, so forming a connecting link between the two and making man physically a single entity. We have seen that every thought is received by the brain, which is the organ of the conscious. It is here subjected to our power of reasoning. When the objective mind has been satisfied that the thought is true, it is sent to the solar plexus, or the brain of the subjective mind, to be made into our flesh, to be brought forth into the world as reality. It is then no longer susceptible to any argument whatever. The subconscious mind cannot argue. It only acts. It accepts the conclusions of the objective mind as final. The solar plexus has been likened to the sum of the body because it is a central point of distribution for the energy which the body is constantly generating. This energy is very real energy, and this sun is a very real sun, and the energy is being distributed by very real nerves to all parts of the body and is thrown off in an atmosphere which envelops the body. If this radiation is sufficiently strong, the person is called magnetic. He is said to be filled with personal magnetism. Now, such a person may wield an immense power for good. His presence alone will often bring comfort to the troubled minds with which he comes in contact. When the solar plexus is in active operation and is radiating life, energy, and vitality to every part of the body and to every one whom he meets, the sensations are pleasant. The body is filled with health, and all with whom he comes in contact experience a pleasant sensation. If there is any interruption of this radiation, the sensations are unpleasant. The flow of life and energy to some part of the body is stopped, 
And this is the cause of every ill to the human race, physical, mental, or environmental. Physical because the sun of the body is no longer generating sufficient energy to vitalize some part of the body. Mental because the conscious mind is dependent upon the subconscious mind for the vitality necessary to support its thought. And environmental because the connection between the subconscious mind and the universal mind is being interrupted. The solar plexus is the point at which the part meets with the whole, where the finite becomes infinite, where the uncreate becomes create, the universal becomes individualized, the invisible becomes visible. It is the point at which life appears, and there is no limit to the amount of life an individual may generate from this solar center. This center of energy is omnipotent because it is the point of contact with all life and all intelligence. It can, therefore, accomplish whatever it is directed to accomplish, and herein lies the power of the conscious mind. The subconscious can and will carry out such plans and ideas as may be suggested to it by the conscious mind. Conscious thought, then, is the master of this sun center from which the life and energy of the entire body flows, and the quality of the thought which we entertain determines the quality of the thought which this sun will radiate, and the character of the thought which our conscious mind entertains will determine the character of the thought which this sun will radiate, and the nature of the thought which our conscious mind entertains will determine the nature of thought which the sun will radiate, and consequently will determine the nature of the experience which will result. It is evident, therefore, that all we have to do is let our light shine. The more energy we can radiate, the more rapidly shall we be enabled to transmute undesirable conditions into sources of pleasure and profit. The important question, then, is how to let this light shine and how to generate this energy. Non-resistant thought expands the solar plexus. Resistant thought contracts it. Pleasant thought expands it. Unpleasant thought contracts it. Thoughts of courage, power, confidence, and hope all produce a corresponding state. But the one arch enemy of the solar plexus which must be absolutely destroyed before there is any possibility of letting any light shine is fear. This enemy must be completely destroyed. He must be eliminated. He must be expelled forever. He is the cloud which hides the sun, which causes a perpetual gloom. It is this personal devil which makes men fear the past, the present, and the future, fear themselves, their friends, and their enemies, fear everything and everybody. When fear is effectually and completely destroyed, your light will shine. The clouds will disperse, and you'll have found the source of power, energy, and life. When you find that you're really one with the infinite power, and when you can consciously realize that this power by a practical demonstration of your ability to overcome any adverse condition by the power of your thought, then you will have nothing to fear. Fear will have been destroyed, and you will have come into possession of your birthright. It is our attitude of mind toward life which determines the experiences with which we are to meet. If we expect nothing, we shall have nothing. If we demand much, we shall receive the greater portion. The world is harsh only as we fail to assert ourselves. The criticism of the world is bitter only to those who cannot compel room for their ideas. It is fear of this criticism that causes many ideas to fail to see the light of day. But the man who knows that he has a solar plexus will not fear criticism or anything else. He will be too busy radiating courage, confidence, and power. He will anticipate success by his mental attitude. He will pound barriers to pieces. He will leap over the chasm of doubt and hesitation which fear places in his path. A knowledge of our ability to consciously radiate health, strength, and harmony will bring us into a realization that there is nothing to fear because we're in touch with infinite strength. Now this knowledge can be gained only by making practical application of this information. We learn by doing. Through practice, the athlete becomes powerful. 
As the following statement is of considerable importance, I will put it in several ways so that you cannot fail to get the full significance of it. If you are religiously inclined, I would say that you can let your light shine. If your mind has a bias toward physical science, I would say that you can wake the solar plexus. Or if you prefer the strictly scientific interpretation, I will say that you can impress your subconscious mind. I've already told you what the result of this impression will be. It is the method in which you are now interested. You've already learned that the subconscious is intelligent and that it is creative and responsive to the will of the conscious mind. What then is the most natural way of making the desired impression? Mentally concentrate on the object of your desire. When you are concentrating, you are impressing the subconscious. This is not the only way, but it is a simple and effective way and the most direct way, and consequently the way in which the best results are secured. It is the method which is producing such extraordinary results that many think that miracles are being accomplished. It is the method by which every great inventor, every great financier, every great statesman has been enabled to convert the subtle and invisible force of desire, faith, and confidence into actual, tangible, concrete facts in the objective world. The subconscious mind is a part of the universal mind. The universal is the creative principle of the universe. A part must be the same in kind and quality as the whole. This means that this creative power is absolutely unlimited. It is not bound by precedent of any kind and consequently has no prior existing pattern by which to apply its constructive principle. We have found that the subconscious mind is responsive to our conscious will, which means that the unlimited creative power of the universal mind is within control of the conscious mind of the individual. When making a practical application of this principle, in accordance with the exercises given in the subsequent lessons, it is well to remember that it is not necessary to outline the method by which the subconscious will produce the results you desire. The finite cannot inform the infinite. You are simply to say what you desire, not how you are to obtain it. You are the channel by which the undifferentiated is being differentiated, and this differentiation is being accomplished by appropriation. It only requires recognition to set causes in motion, which will bring about results in accordance with your desire, and this is accomplished because the universal can act only through the individual, and the individual can act only through the universal. They are one. For your exercise this week, I will ask you to go to one step further. I want you to not only be perfectly still and inhibit all thought as far as possible, but relax. Let go. Let the muscles take their normal condition. This will remove all pressure from the nerves and eliminate that tension which so frequently produces physical exhaustion. Physical relaxation is a voluntary exercise of the will, and the exercise will be found to be of great value as it enables the blood to circulate freely to and from the brain and the body. Tension leads to mental unrest and abnormal mental activity of the mind. It produces worry, care, fear, and anxiety. Relaxation is therefore an absolute necessity in order to allow the mental faculties to exercise the greatest freedom. Make this exercise as thorough and complete as possible. Mentally determine that you will relax every muscle and nerve until you feel quiet and restful and at peace with yourself and the world. The solar plexus will then be ready to function and you're going to be very surprised at the result. Enclosed herewith, I hand you part four. Now this part will show you why what you think or do or feel is an indication of what you are. Thought is energy and energy is power 
and it is because all the religions, sciences, and philosophies with which the world has heretofore been familiar have been based upon the manifestation of this energy instead of the energy itself that the world has been limited to effects while causes have been ignored or misunderstood. For this reason we have God and the devil in religion, positive and negative in science, and good and bad in philosophy. The master key reverses the process. It is interested only in cause, and the letters received from students tell a marvelous story. They indicate conclusively that students are finding the cause, whereby they may secure for themselves health, harmony, abundance, and whatever else may be necessary for their welfare and happiness. Life is expressive, and it is our business to express ourselves harmoniously and constructively. Sorrow, misery, unhappiness, disease, and poverty are not necessities, and we are constantly eliminating them. But this process of eliminating consists in rising above and beyond limitation of any kind. He who has strengthened and purified his thought need not concern himself about microbes, and he who has come into an understanding of the law of abundance will go at once to the source of supply. It is thus that fate, fortune, and destiny will be controlled as readily as a captain controls his ship or an engineer his train. And now part four. The eye of you is not the physical body that is simply an instrument which the eye uses to carry out its purposes. The eye cannot be the mind, for the mind is simply another instrument which the eye uses with which to think, reason, and plan. The eye must be something which controls and directs both the body and the mind, something which determines what they shall do and how they shall act. When you come into a realization of the true nature of this I, you will enjoy a sense of power which you have never before known. Your personality is made up of countless individual characteristics, peculiarities, habits, and traits of character. These are the results of your former method of thinking, but they have nothing to do with the real I. When you say, I think, the I tells the mind what it shall think. When you say, I go, the I tells the physical body where it shall go. The real nature of this I is spiritual, and it is the source of the real power which comes to men and women when they come into a realization of their own true nature. The greatest and most marvelous power which this I has been given is the power to think, but few people know how to think constructively or correctly. Consequently, they achieve only indifferent results. Most people allow their thoughts to dwell on selfish purposes, the inevitable result of an infantile mind. When a mind becomes mature, it understands that the germ of defeat is in every selfish thought. The trained mind knows that every transaction must benefit every person who is in any way connected with the transaction, and any attempt to profit by the weakness, ignorance, or necessity of another will inevitably operate to his disadvantage. Now this is because the individual is a part of the universal. A part cannot antagonize any other part, but on the contrary, the welfare of each part depends upon a recognition of the interest of the whole. Those who recognize this principle have a great advantage in the affairs of life. They do not wear themselves out. They can eliminate vagrant thoughts with facility. They can readily concentrate to the highest possible degree on any subject. They do not waste time or money upon objects which can be of no possible benefit to them. Now, if you cannot do these things, it's because you have thus far not made the necessary effort. Now is the time to make the effort. The result will be exactly in proportion to the effort expended. One of the strongest affirmations which you can use for this purpose of strengthening the will and realizing your power to accomplish is, 
quote, I can be what I will to be, end quote. Every time you repeat it, realize who and what this I is. Try to come into a thorough understanding of the true nature of the I. If you do, you will become invincible. That is provided that your objects and purposes are constructive and are therefore in harmony with the creative principle of the universe. If you make use of this affirmation, use it continuously night and morning and as often during the day as you think of it and continue to do so until it becomes a part of you. In other words, form the habit. Unless you do this, you'd better not start at all because modern psychology tells us that when we start something and do not complete it, or make a resolution and do not keep it, we are forming the habit of failure, absolute, ignominious failure. If you do not intend to do a thing, do not start it. If you start, see it through, even if the heavens fall. If you make up your mind to do something, do it. Let nothing or no one interfere with the I that you have determined. The thing is settled, the die is cast, and there is no longer any argument. If you carry out this idea, beginning with small things which you know you can control, and gradually increase the effort, but never under any circumstance allowing your eye to be overruled, you will find that you can eventually control yourself, and many men and women have found to their sorrow that it is easier to control a kingdom than to control themselves. But when you've learned to control yourself, you would have found the world within which controls the world without. You will have become irresistible. Men and things will respond to your every wish without any apparent effort on your part. This is not so strange or impossible as it may appear when you remember that the world within is controlled by the I, and that this I is a part or one with the infinite I, which is the universal energy or spirit, usually called God. This is not a mere statement of theory made for the purpose of confirming or establishing an idea, but it is a fact which has been accepted by the best religious thought as well as the best scientific thought. Herbert Spender said, I quote, Amid all the mysteries by which we are surrounded, nothing is more certain than that we are ever in the presence of an infinite and eternal energy from which all things proceed, end quote. Lyman Abbott, in an address delivered before the alumni of Bangor Theological Seminary, said, quote, We are coming to think of God as dwelling in man rather than as operating on men. Science goes a little way in its search and then stops. Science finds the ever-present eternal energy, but religion finds the power behind this energy, and it locates it within man. But this is by no means a new discovery. The Bible says exactly the same thing, and the language is just as plain and convincing. It says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God? Here, then, is the secret of the wonderful creative power of the world within. Here is the secret of power, of mastery. To overcome does not mean to go without things. Self-denial is not success. We cannot give unless we get. We cannot be helpful unless we're strong. The infinite is not bankrupt, and we who are the representatives of infinite power should not be bankrupts either. And if we wish to be of service to others, we must have power and more power, but to get it, we must give it. We must be of service. The more we give, the more we shall get. We must become a channel whereby the universal can express activity. The universal is constantly seeking to express itself, to be of service, and it seeks the channel whereby it can find the greatest activity, where it can do the most good, where it can be of the greatest service to mankind. The universal cannot express through you as long as you're busy with your plans, your own purposes. Quiet the senses, seek inspiration, focus the mental activity on the within. 
Dwell in the consciousness of your unity with omnipotence. Still water runs deep. Contemplate the multitudinous opportunities to which you have spiritual access by the omnipresence of power. Visualize the events, circumstances, and conditions which these spiritual connections may assist in manifesting. Realize the fact that the essence and soul of all things is spiritual and that the spiritual is the real because it is the life of all there is. When the spirit is gone, the life is gone. It is dead. It has ceased to exist. These mental activities pertain to the world within, to the world of cause and conditions and circumstances, which result are the effect. It is thus that you become a creator. Now this is important work, and the higher, loftier, grander, and more noble ideals which you can conceive, the more important the work will become. Overwork or overplay or over-bodily activity of any kind produces conditions of mental apathy and also stagnation which makes it impossible to do the more important work which results in a realization of conscious power. We should, therefore, seek the silence frequently. Power comes through repose. It is in the silence that we can be still, and when we are still, we can think, and thought is the secret of all attainment. Thought is a mode of motion and is carried by the law of vibration, the same as light or electricity. It is given vitality by the emotions through the law of love. It takes form and expression by the law of growth. It is a product of the spiritual eye, hence its divine spiritual and creative nature. From this it is evident that in order to express power, abundance, or any other constructive purpose, the emotions must be called upon to give feeling. How may this purpose be accomplished? This is the vital point. How may we develop the faith, the courage, and the feeling which will result in accomplishment? The reply is by exercise. Mental strength is secured in exactly the same way that physical strength is secured, by exercise. We think something, perhaps with difficulty the first time. We think the same thing again, and it becomes easier this time. We think it again and again. It then becomes a mental habit. We continue to think the same thing. Finally, it becomes automatic. We can no longer help thinking this thing that we are now positive of what we think. There is no longer any doubt about it. We are sure that we know. Last week, I asked you to relax, to let go physically. This week, I'm going to ask you to let go mentally. If you practice the exercise given you last week, 15 or 20 minutes a day, in accordance with the instructions, you can no doubt relax physically, and anyone who cannot consciously do this quickly and completely is not a master of himself. He has not obtained freedom. He is still a slave to conditions. But I shall assume that you've mastered the exercise and are ready to take the next step, which is mental freedom. Now this week, after taking your usual position, remove all tension by completely relaxing, then mentally let go of all adverse conditions, like hatred, anger, worry, jealousy, envy, sorrow, trouble, or disappointment of any kind. You might say that you cannot let go of these things, but you can. You can do so by mentally determining to do so, by voluntary intention and persistence. The reason that some cannot do this is because they allow themselves to be controlled by the emotions instead of by their intellect. But those who will be guided by the intellect will gain the victory. You will not succeed the first time you try, but practice makes perfect. In this, as in everything else, you must succeed in dismissing, eliminating, and completely destroying these negative and destructive thoughts, because they are the seed which is constantly germinating into discordant conditions of every conceivable kind and description. 
there is nothing truer than that the quality of thought which we entertain correlates certain externals in the outside world. This is the law from which there is no escape, and it is the law, this correlative of the thought with its object, that from time immemorial has led the people to believe in special providence. And now enclosed you will find part five. After studying this part carefully, you will see that every conceivable force or object or fact is the result of mind in action. Mind in action is thought, and thought is creative. Men are thinking now as they have never thought before. Therefore, this is a creative stage, and the world is awarding its richest prizes to the thinkers. Matter is powerless, passive and inert. Mind is force, energy, and power. Mind shapes and controls matter. Every form from which matter takes is but the expression of some pre-existing thought. But thought works no magic transformations. It obeys natural laws. It sets in motion natural forces. It releases natural energies. It manifests in your conduct and actions, and these in turn react upon your friends and acquaintances, and eventually upon the whole of your environment. You can originate thought, and since thoughts are creative, you can create for yourself the very things you desire. And now part five. At least 90% of our mental life is subconscious, so that those who fail to make use of this mental power live within very narrow limits. The subconscious can and will solve any problem for us if we know how to direct it. The subconscious processes are always at work. The only question is, are we to be simply passive recipients of this activity, or are we to consciously direct the work? Shall we have a vision of the destination to be reached, the dangers to be avoided, or shall we simply drift? We have found that mind pervades every part of the physical body and is always capable of being directed or impressed by authority coming from the objective or from the more dominant portion of the mind. The mind which pervades the body is largely the result of heredity, which in turn is simply the result of all the environments of all past generations on the responsive and ever-moving life forces. An understanding of this fact will enable us to use our authority when we find some undesirable trait of character manifesting. We can consciously use all of the desirable characteristics with which we have been provided, and we can repress and refuse to allow the undesirable ones to manifest. Again, this mind which pervades our physical body is not only the result of hereditary tendencies, but it is the result of home, business, and social environment where countless thousands of impressions, ideas, prejudices, and similar thoughts have been received. Much of this has been received from others. The result of opinions, suggestions, or statements, much of it is the result of our own thinking, but nearly all of it has been accepted with little or no examination or consideration. The idea seemed plausible. The conscious received it, passed it on to the subconscious, where it was taken up by the sympathetic system and passed on to be built into our physical body. The word has become flesh. This, then, is the way we are consistently creating and recreating ourselves. We are today the result of our past thinking, and we shall be what we're thinking today. The law of attraction is bringing to us not the things we should like or the things we wish for or even the things someone else has, but it brings us our own, the things which we have created by our thought processes, whether consciously or unconsciously. Unfortunately, many of us are creating these things unconsciously. Now, if either of us were building a home for ourselves, how careful would we be in regard to the plans? How would we study every detail? How we should watch the material and select only the best of everything, and yet, 
how careless we are when it comes to building our mental home, which is infinitely more important than any physical home, as everything which can possibly enter into our lives depends upon the character of the material which enters into the construction of our own mental home. So what is the character of this material? We've seen that it is the result of the impressions which we have accumulated in the past and stored away in our subconscious mentality. If these impressions have been of fear, of worry, of care, or of anxiety, or if they've been despondent, negative, doubtful, well then the texture of the material which we are weaving today will be of the same negative material. Instead of being any value, it will be mildewed and rotten and will bring us only more toil and care and anxiety. We shall be forever busy trying to patch it up and make it appear at least genteel. But if we've stored away nothing but courageous thought, if we've been optimistic, positive, and have immediately thrown any kind of negative thought on the scrap pile, have refused to have anything to do with it, have refused to associate with it, or become identified with it in any way, what then is the result? Our mental material is now of the best kind. We can weave any kind of material we want. We can use any color we wish. We know that the texture is firm, that the material is solid, that it will not fade, and we will have no fear, no anxiety concerning the future. There is nothing to cover. There are no patches to hide. These are psychological facts. There is no theory or guesswork about these thinking processes at all. There's nothing secret about them. In fact, they are so plain that everyone can understand them. The thing to do is have a mental house cleaning and to have this house cleaning every day and keep the house clean. Mental, moral, and physical cleanliness are absolutely indispensable if we're to make progress of any kind. When this mental house cleaning process has been completed, the material which is left will be suitable for the making of the kind of ideals or mental images which we desire to realize. There is fine estates awaiting a claimant. Its broad acres with abundant crops, running water, and fine timber stretch away as far as the eye can see. There is a mansion, spacious and cheerful, with rare pictures, a well-stocked library, rich hangings, and every comfort and luxury. All the heir has to do is assert his heirship, take possession, and use the property. He must use it. He must not let it decay, for use is the condition on which he holds it. To neglect it is to lose possession. In the domain of mind and spirit, in the domain of practical power, such an estate is yours. You are the heir. You can assert your heirship and possess and use this rich inheritance. Power over circumstances is one of its fruits. Health, harmony, and prosperity are assets upon its balance sheet. It offers you poise and peace. It costs you only the labor of studying and harvesting its great resources. It demands no sacrifice except the loss of your limitations, your servitudes, your weakness. It clothes you with self-honor and puts a scepter in your hands. To gain this estate, three processes are necessary. First, you must earnestly desire it. Second, you must assert your claim. And third, you must take possession. You admit that those are not burdensome conditions. You're familiar with the subject of heredity. Darwin, Huxley, Hackle, and other physical scientists have piled evidence mountain high that heredity is a law attending progressive creation. It is progressive heredity which gives man his erect attitude, his power of motion, the organs of digestion, blood circulation, nerve force, muscular force, bone structure, and a host of other faculties on the physical side. There are even more impressive facts concerning heredity of mind force. All these constitute what may be called your human heredity. But there is a heredity which the physical scientists have not compassed. It lies beneath and antecedent to all their researches. 
at a point where they throw up their hands in despair and they say they cannot account for what they see. This divine heredity is found in full sway. It's the benign force which decrees primal creation. It thrills down from the divine, direct into every created being. It originates life, which the physical scientist has not done, nor can he ever do. It stands out among all forces supreme, unapproachable. No human heredity can approach it. No human heredity measures up to it. This infinite life flows through you. It is you. Its doorways are but the faculties which comprise your consciousness. To keep open these doors is the secret of power. Is it not worthwhile to make that effort? The great fact is that the source of all life and all power comes from within. Persons, circumstances, and events may suggest need and opportunities, but the insight, strength, and power to answer these needs will be found within. Avoid counterfeits. Build firm foundations for your consciousness upon forces which flow direct from the infinite source, the universal mind of which you are the image and likeness. Those we have come into possession of this inheritance are never quite the same. They have come into possession of a sense of power hitherto undreamed of. They can never again be timid, weak, vacillating, or fearful. They are indissolubly connected with omnipotence, and something in them has been aroused. They have suddenly discovered that they possess a tremendous latent ability of which they were heretofore entirely unconscious. This power is from within, but we cannot receive it unless we give it. Use is the condition upon which we hold this inheritance. We are each of us but the channel through which the omnipotent power is being differentiated into form. Unless we give the channel and is obstructed and we can receive no more. This is true on every plane of existence and in every field of endeavor and all walks of life. The more we give, the more we get. The athlete who wishes to get strong must make use of the strength he has, and the more he gives, the more he gets. The financier who wishes to make money must make use of the money he has, for only by using it can he get more. Now the merchant who does not keep his goods going out will soon have none coming in. The corporation which fails to give efficient service will soon lack customers. The attorney who fails to get results will soon lack clients, and so it goes everywhere. Power is contingent upon a proper use of the power already in our possession. What is true in every field of endeavor, every experience in life is true of the power from which every other power known among men is begotten, spiritual power. Take away the spirit, and what is left? Nothing. If then the spirit is all there is, upon the recognition of this fact must depend the ability to demonstrate all power, whether physical, mental, or spiritual. All possession is the result of the accumulative attitude of mind or the money consciousness. This is the magic wand which will enable you to receive the idea, and it will formulate plans for you to execute, and you will find as much pleasure in the execution as in the satisfaction of attainment and achievement. Now go to your room, take the same seat, the same position as heretofore, and mentally select a place which has pleasant associations. Make a complete mental picture of it. See the buildings, the grounds, the trees, see your friends, associations, everything complete. At first you'll find yourself thinking of everything under the sun except the ideal upon which you desire to concentrate. But don't let that discourage you. Persistence will win, but persistence requires that you practice these exercises every day without fail. And now it's my privilege to enclose part six. This part will give you an excellent understanding of the most wonderful piece of mechanism which has ever been created, a mechanism whereby you may create for yourself 
strength, health, success, prosperity, or any other condition which you desire. Necessities are demands, and demands create action, and actions bring about results. The process of evolution is constantly building our tomorrows out of our todays. Individual development, like universal development, must be gradual with an ever-increasing capacity and volume. The knowledge that if we infringe upon the rights of others, we become moral thorns and find ourselves entangled at every turn of the road should be an indication that success is contingent upon the highest moral ideal, which is the greatest good to the greatest number. Aspiration, desire, and harmonious relations constantly and persistently maintained will accomplish results. The greatest hindrance is erroneous and fixed ideas. To be in tune with eternal truth, we must possess poise and harmony within. In order to receive intelligence, the receiver must be in tune with the transmitter. Thought is a product of mind, and mind is creative, but this does not mean that the universal law will change its modus operandi to suit us or our ideas, but it does mean that we can come into harmonious relationship with the universal, and when we have accomplished this, we may ask anything to which we are entitled, and the way will be made plain. The universal mind is so wonderful that it's difficult to understand its utilitarian powers and possibilities and its unlimited producing effects. Now we found that this mind is not only all intelligence but all substance. How then is it to be differentiated in form? How are we to secure the effect which we desire? Ask any electrician what the effect of electricity will be and he'll reply that electricity is a form of motion and its effect will depend upon the mechanism to which it is attached. Upon this mechanism will depend whether we shall have heat, light, power, music, or any of the other marvelous demonstrations of power to which this vital energy has been harnessed. What effect can be produced by thought? Well, the reply is that thought is mind in motion, just as wind is air in motion, and its effect will depend entirely on the mechanism to which it is attached. Here, then, is the secret of all mental power. It depends entirely on the mechanism which we attach. Well, what is this mechanism? You know something of the mechanism which has been invented by Edison, Bell, Marconi, and other electrical wizards by which place and space and time have become only figures of speech. But did you ever stop to think that the mechanism which has been given you for transforming the universal, omnipresent potential power was invented by a greater inventor than Edison? We are accustomed to examining the mechanism of the implements which we use for tilling the soil, and we try to get an understanding of the mechanism of the automobile which we drive. But most of us are content to remain in absolute ignorance of the greatest piece of mechanism which has ever come into existence, and that is the brain of man. Let's examine the wonders of this mechanism. Perhaps we shall thereby get a better understanding of the various effects of which it is the cause. In the first place, there is great mental world in which we live and move and have our being. This world is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. It will respond to our desire in direct ratio to our purpose and faith. The purpose must be in accordance with the law of our being. Now that is, it must be creative or constructive. Our faith must be strong enough to generate a current of sufficient strength to bring our purpose into manifestation. As thy faith is, so be it unto thee, bears the stamp of scientific test. The effects which are produced in the world without are the result of the action and reaction of the individual upon the universal. That is the process which we call thinking. The brain is the organ through all this process is accomplished. Now think of the wonder of it all. Do you love music, flowers, literature? Or are you inspired by the thought of ancient or modern genius? 
Remember, every beauty to which you respond must have its corresponding outline in your brain before you can appreciate it. There's not a single virtue or principle in the storehouse of nature which the brain cannot express. The brain is an embryonic world ready to develop at any time as necessity may arise. If you can comprehend that this is a scientific truth and one of the wonderful laws of nature, it will be easier for you to get an understanding of the mechanism by which these extraordinary results are being accomplished. The nervous system has been compared to an electric circuit with its battery of cells in which every force is originated and its white matter to insulated wires by which the current is conveyed. It is through these channels that every impulse or desire is carried through the mechanism. The spinal cord is the great motor and sensory pathway by which messages are conveyed to and from the brain. Then there is the blood supply plunging through the veins and arteries, renewing our energy and strength, the perfectly arranged structure upon which the entire physical body rests. And finally, the delicate and beautiful skin clothing the entire mechanism is a mantle of beauty. This, then, is the temple of the living God, and the individual I is given control, and upon his understanding of the mechanism which is within his control will the result depend. Now every thought sets the brain cells in action. At first the substance upon which the thought is directed fails to respond, but if the thought is sufficiently refined and concentrated, the substance finally yields and expresses perfectly. This influence of the mind can be exerted upon any part of the body causing the elimination of any undesirable effect. A perfect conception and understanding of the laws governing in the mental world cannot fail to be of inestimable value in the transaction of business as it develops the power of discernment and gives a clearer understanding and appreciation of facts. The man who looks within instead of without cannot fail to make use of the mighty forces which will eventually determine his course in life and so bring him into vibration with all that is best, strongest, and most desirable. Attention or concentration is probably the most essential in the development of mind culture. The possibilities of attention when properly directed are so startling that they would hardly appear credible to the uninitiated. The cultivation of attention is the distinguishing characteristic of every successful man or woman and is the very highest personal accomplishment which can be acquired. The power of attention can be more readily understood by comparing it with a magnifying glass in which the rays of sunlight are focused. They possess no particular strength as long as the glass is moved about and the rays directed from one place to another. But let the glass be held perfectly still and let the rays be focused on one spot for any length of time and the effect will become immediately apparent. So with the power of thought, let power be dissipated by scattering the thought from one object to another and no result is apparent but just focus this power through attention or concentration on any single purpose for any length of time and nothing becomes impossible. Nothing becomes impossible. A very simple remedy for the very complex situation, some will say, all right, try it. You who have had no experience in concentrating the thought on a definite purpose or object, choose any single object and concentrate your attention on it for a definite purpose for even 10 minutes. You'll find you can't do it. The mind will wander a dozen times, and it's going to be necessary to bring it back to the original purpose, and each time the effect will have been lost, and at the end of the ten minutes nothing will have been gained because you've not been able to hold your thoughts processes steadily to the purpose. It is, however, through attention that you'll finally be able to overcome obstacles of any kind that appear in your path, onward and upward, and the only way to acquire this wonderful power is by practice. Practice makes perfect in this as in anything else. 
In order to cultivate the power of attention, bring a photograph with you to the same seat in the same room in the same position as heretofore. Examine it closely at least 10 minutes. Note the expression of the eyes, the form of the features, the clothing, the way the hair is arranged. In fact, note every detail shown on the photograph carefully. Now cover it and close your eyes and try to see it mentally. If you can see every detail perfectly and can form a good mental image of the photograph, you're to be congratulated. If not, try repeating the process until you can. This step is simply for the purpose of preparing the soil. Next week, we'll be ready to sow the seed. Great financiers are learning to withdraw from the multitude more and more. And they may have more time for planning, thinking, and generating the right mental moods. Successful businessmen are constantly demonstrating the fact that it pays to keep in touch with the thought of other successful businessmen. A single idea may be worth millions of dollars, and these ideas can only come to those who are receptive, who are prepared to receive them, and who are in successful frames of mind. Men are learning to place themselves in harmony with the universal mind. They are learning the unity of all things. They are learning the basic methods and principles of thinking, and this is changing conditions and multiplying results. They are finding that circumstances and environmental trends follow the trends of mental and spiritual progress. They always the spiritual first, then the transformation into the infinite and illimitable possibilities of achievement. As the individual is but the channel for the differentiation of the universal, these possibilities are necessarily inexhaustible. Thought is the process by which we may absorb the spirit of power and hold the result in our inner consciousness until it becomes a part of our ordinary consciousness. The method of accomplishing this result by the persistent practice of a few fundamental principles, as explained in this system, is the master key which unlocks the storehouse of universal truth. These two great sources of human suffering at present are bodily disease and mental anxiety. These may be readily traced to the infringement of some natural laws, this is no doubt owing to the fact that so far knowledge has largely remained partial, but the clouds of darkness which have accumulated through long ages are now beginning to roll away, and with them many of the miseries that attend imperfect information, that a man can change himself, improve himself, recreate himself, control his environment, and master his own destiny, is the conclusion of every mind who is wide awake to the power of right thought in constructive action. Through all the ages, man has believed in an invisible power, through which and by which all things have been created and are continually being recreated. We may personalize this power and call it God, or we may think of it as the essence or spirit which permeates all things, but in either case the effect is still the same. So far as the individual is concerned, the objective, the physical, the visible, is the personal, that which can be cognizized by the senses. It consists of body, brain, and nerves. The subjective is the spiritual, the invisible, the impersonal. The personal is conscious because it is a personal entity. The impersonal being, the same in kind and quality as all other beings, is not conscious of itself and has therefore been termed the subconscious. The personal or conscious has the power of will and choice and can therefore exercise discrimination in the selection of methods whereby to bring about the solution of difficulties. The impersonable or spiritual, being a part or one with the source and origin of all power, can necessarily exercise no such choice, but on the contrary it has infinite resources at its command. It can and does bring about results by methods concerning which the human or individual mind can have no possible conception. 
You will therefore see that this is your privilege to depend upon the human will with all of its limitations and misconceptions, or you may utilize the potentialities of infinity by making use of the subconscious mind. Here then is the scientific explanation of the wonderful power which has been put within your control, if you but understand, appreciate, and recognize it. One method of consciously utilizing this omnipresent power is outlined now in Part 7. Visualization is the process of making mental images, and the image is the mold or the model, which will serve as a pattern from which your future will emerge. Make the pattern clear and make it beautiful. Don't be afraid. Make it grand. Remember that no limitation can be placed upon you by anyone but yourself. You are not limited as to cost or material. Draw on the infinite for your supply. Construct it in your imagination. It will have to be there before it will ever appear anywhere else. Make the image clear and clean cut. Hold it firmly in the mind and you will gradually and constantly bring the thing nearer to you. You can be what you will to be. This is another psychological fact which is well known, but unfortunately, reading about it will not bring about any result which you may have in mind. It won't even help you to form the mental image, much less bring it into manifestation. Work is necessary. Labor. Hard mental labor. The kind of effort which so few are willing to put forth. The first step is idealization. It is likewise the most important step because it is the plan on which you are going to build. It must be solid. It must be permanent. The architect, when he plans a 30-story building, has every line and detail pictured in advance. The engineer, when he spans a chasm, first ascertains the strength requirements of a million separate parts. They see the end before a single step is taken. So you are to picture in your mind what you want. You are sowing the seed, but before sowing any seed, you want to know what the harvest is to be. This is idealization. If you are not sure, return to the chair daily until the picture becomes plain. It will gradually unfold. First, the general plan will be dim, but it will take shape. The outline will take form, then the details, and you will gradually develop the power by which you will be enabled to formulate plans which will eventually materialize in the objective world. You will come to know what the future holds for you. Then comes the process of visualization. You must see the picture more and more complete. See the detail, and as the details begin to unfold, the ways and means for bringing it into manifestation will develop. One thing will lead to another. Thought will lead to action. Action will develop methods. Methods will develop friends, and friends will bring about circumstances. And finally, the third step, or materialization, will have been accomplished. We all recognize the universe must have been thought into shape before it could ever have become a material fact. And if we're willing to follow along the lines of the great architect of the universe, we shall find our thoughts taking form just as the universe took concrete form. It's the same mind operating through the individual. There is no difference in kind or quality. The only difference is one of degree. The architect visualizes his buildings. He sees it as he wishes it to be. His thought becomes a plastic mold from which the building will eventually emerge, a high one or a low one, a beautiful one or a plain one. His vision takes form on paper, and eventually the necessary material is utilized and the building stands complete. The inventor visualizes his idea in exactly the same manner. For instance, Nikola Tesla, he with the giant intellect, one of the greatest inventors of all ages, the man who has brought forth the most amazing realities, always visualizes his inventions before attempting to work them out. He did not rush to embody them in form and then spend his time in correcting defects. Having first built up the idea in his imagination, he held it there as a mental picture to be reconstructed and improved by his thought. 
In this way, he writes in the Electrical Experimenter, I am enabled to rapidly develop and perfect a conception without touching anything. When I have gone so far as to embody in the invention every possible improvement I can think of and see no fault anywhere, I put it into concrete, the product of my brain. Invariably, my device works, and as I conceived it should, in 20 years there's not been a single exception. Now, if you can consciously follow these directions, you'll develop faith, the kind of faith that is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You will develop confidence, the kind of confidence that leads you to endurance and courage. You'll develop the power of concentration, which will enable you to exclude all thoughts except for the ones which are associated with your purpose. The law is that thought will manifest in form, and only one who knows how to be the divine thinker of his own thoughts can ever take a master's place and speak with authority. Clearness and accuracy are obtained only by repeatedly having the image in mind. Each repeated action renders the image more clear and accurate than the preceding, and in proportion to the clearness and accuracy of the image, it will outline toward manifestation. You must build it firmly and securely in your mental world, the world within, before it can take form in the world without. And you can build nothing of value, even in the mental world, unless you have the proper material. When you have the material, you can build anything you wish, but make sure of your material. You cannot make broadcloth from shoddy. This material will be brought out by millions of silent mental workers and fashioned into the form of the image which you have in mind. Now think of it. You have over five million of these mental workers ready and in active use. They're called brain cells. Besides this, there's another reserve force of at least an equal number ready to be called into action at the slightest need. Your power to think, then, is almost unlimited, and this means that your power to create the kind of material which is necessary to build for yourself any kind of environment which you desire is practically unlimited. In addition to these millions of mental workers, you have billions of mental workers in the body every one of which is endowed with sufficient intelligence to understand and act upon any message or suggestion given. These cells are all busy creating and recreating the body, but in addition to this, they are endowed with psychic activity, whereby they can attract to themselves the substance necessary for perfect development. They do this by the same law and in the same manner that every form of life attracts to itself the necessary material for growth. The oak, the rose, the lily, they all require certain material for their most perfect expression, and they secure it by silent demand, the law of attraction, the most certain way for you to secure what you require for your most complete development. Make the mental image, make it clear, distinct, perfect. Hold it firmly. The ways and means will develop. Supply will follow. The demand you will be led to do the right thing at the right time and in the right way. Earnest desire will bring about confident expectation, and this in turn must be reinforced by firm demand. These three cannot fail to bring about attainment because the earnest desire is the feeling, the confident expectation is the thought, and the firm demand is the will. And as we've seen, feeling gives vitality to thought, and the will holds it steadily until the law of growth brings it into manifestation. Is it not wonderful that man has such tremendous power within himself such transcendental faculties concerning which he had no conception? Is it not strange that we have always been taught to look for strength and power without? We've been taught to look everywhere but within, and whenever this power manifested in our lives, we were told that it was something supernatural. There are many who have come to an understanding of this wonderful power, and who make more serious and conscientious efforts to realize health, power, and other conditions, and they seem to fail. 
they don't seem to be able to bring the law into operation. The difficulty in nearly every case is that they're dealing with externals. They want money, power, health, and abundance, but they fail to realize that these are the effects and can come only when the cause is found. Those who will give no attention to the world without will seek only to ascertain the truth. They will look only for wisdom, and they will find that this wisdom will unfold and disclose the source of all power, that it will manifest in thought and purpose, which will create the external conditions desired. This truth will find expression in noble purpose and courageous action. Create ideals only. Give no thought to the external conditions. Make the world within beautiful and opulent, and the world without will express and manifest the condition which you have within. You will come into a realization of your power to create ideals, and these ideals will be projected into the world of effect. For instance, a man is in debt. He will continually be thinking about the debt, concentrating on it, and his thoughts are causes. The result is that he not only fastens the debt closer to him, but he actually creates more debt. He's putting the great law of attraction into operation with the usual and inevitable result. Loss leads to greater loss. So what then is the correct principle? Concentrate on the things you want, not on the things you don't want. Think of abundance. Idealize the methods and plans for putting the law of abundance into operation. Visualize the condition which the law of abundance creates. This will result in manifestation. If the law operates perfectly to bring about poverty, lack, and every form of limitation for those who are continually entertaining thoughts of lack and fear, it will operate with the same certainty to bring about conditions of abundance and opulence for those who entertain thoughts of courage and of power. This is a difficult problem for many. We are too anxious. We manifest anxiety, fear, and distress. We want to do something. We want to help. We are like a child who has just planted a seed and every 15 minutes goes and stirs up the earth to see if it's growing. Of course, under such circumstances, the seed will never germinate. Yet this is exactly what many of us do in the mental world. So we must plant the seed and leave it undisturbed. This doesn't mean that we are to sit down and do nothing. By no means. We will do more and better work than we have ever done before. New channels will constantly be provided. New doors will open. All that is necessary is to have an open mind. So be ready to act when the time comes. Thought force is the most powerful means of obtaining knowledge. And if concentrated on any subject, will solve the problem. Nothing is beyond the power of human comprehension, but in order to harness thought force and make it do your bidding, work is required. Remember that thought is the fire that creates the steam that turns the wheel of fortune upon which your experiences depend. Now ask yourself a few questions and then reverently await the response. Do you not now and then feel the self with you? Do you assert this self or do you follow the majority? Remember that majorities are always led, they never lead. It was the majority that fought tooth and nail against the steam engine, the power loom, and every other advance or improvement ever suggested. For your exercise this week, visualize your friend. See him exactly as you last saw him. See the room, the furniture. Recall the conversation. Now see his face. See it distinctly. Now talk to him about some subject of mutual interest. See his expression change. Watch him smile. Can you do this? All right, you can. Then arouse his interest. Tell him a story of adventure. See his eyes light up with a spirit of fun or excitement. Can you do all of this? Well, if so, your imagination is good. You are making excellent progress. In this part, you will find that you may freely choose what you think. 
but the result of your thought is governed by an immutable law. Is not this a wonderful thought? Is it not wonderful to know that our lives are not subject to capriciousness or variability of any kind? They are governed by law. This stability is our opportunity because by complying with the law, we can secure the desired effect with invariable precision. It is the law which makes the universe one grand pawn of harmony. If it were not for law, the universe would be a chaos instead of a cosmos. Here then is the secret of the origin of both good and evil. This is all the good and evil that there ever was or ever will be. Let me illustrate. Thought results in action. If your thought is constructive and harmonious, the result will be good. If your thought is destructive or inharmonious, the result will be evil. There is therefore but one law, one principle, one cause, and one source of power, and good and evil are simply words which have been coined to indicate the result of our action, or our compliance or non-compliance with the law. The importance of this is well illustrated in the lives of Emerson and Carlyle. Emerson loved the good life, and his life was a symphony of peace and harmony. Carlyle hated the bad, and his life was a record of perpetual discord and inharmony. Here we have two grand men, each intent upon achieving the same ideal, but one makes use of constructive thought and is therefore in harmony with natural law. The other makes use of destructive thought and is therefore bringing upon himself discord of every kind and character. It is evident, therefore, that we are to hate nothing, not even the bad, because hatred is destructive, and we shall soon find that by entertaining destructive thought we are sowing the wind and in turn shall reap the whirlwind. Here's part eight. Thought contains a vital principle because it is the creative principle of the universe and by its nature will combine with other similar thoughts. As the one purpose of life is growth, all principles underlying existence must contribute to give it effect. Thought therefore takes form and the laws of growth eventually brings it into manifestation. You may freely choose what you think, but the result of your thought is governed by an immutable law. Any line of thought persisted in cannot fail to produce its result in the character, health, and circumstances of the individual, methods whereby we can substitute habits of constructive thinking for those which we have found produce only undesirable effects and are therefore of primary importance. We all know that this is by no means easy. Mental habits are difficult to control, but it can be done, and the way to do it is to begin at once to substitute constructive thought for destructive thought. Form the habit of analyzing every thought. If it's necessary, if its manifestation in the objective will be a benefit, not only to yourself, but to all whom it may affect in any way, keep it. Treasure it. It is of value. It is in tune with the infinite. It will grow and develop and produce fruit an hundredfold. On the other hand, it will be well for you to keep this quotation from George Matthew Adams in mind. And I quote, Learn to keep the door shut. Keep out of your mind, out of your office, and out of your world every element that seeks admittance with no definite helpful end in view. End quote. If your thought has been critical or destructive and has resulted in any condition of discord or inharmony in your environment, it may be necessary for you to cultivate a mental attitude which will be conducive to constructive thought. The imagination will be found to be a great assistance in this direction. The cultivation of the imagination leads to the development of the ideal out of which your future will emerge. The imagination gathers up the material by which the mind weaves the fabric in which your future is to be clothed. Imagine is the light by which we can penetrate new worlds of thought and experience. Imagination is the mighty instrument by which every discoverer 
Every inventor opened the way from precedent to experience. Precedent says it can't be done. Experience says it is done. Imagination is a plastic power, molding the things of sense into new forms and ideals. Imagination is the constructive form of thought which must precede every constructive form of action. A builder cannot build a structure of any kind until he has first received the plans from the architect, and the architect has to get them from his imagination. The captain of industry cannot build a giant corporation which may coordinate hundreds of smaller corporations and thousands of employees and utilize millions of dollars of capital until he has first created the entire work in his imagination. Objects in the material world are as clay in the potter's hand. It is in the master mind that the real things are created, and it is by the use of the imagination that the work is done. In order to cultivate the imagination, it must be exercised. Exercise is necessary to cultivate muscle as well as physical muscle. It must be supplied with nourishment or it cannot grow. Now, don't confuse imagination with fancy or that form of daydreaming in which some people like to indulge. Daydreaming is a form of mental dissipation, which may lead to mental disaster. Constructive imagination means mental labor by some considered to be the hardest kind of labor. But if so, it yields the greatest returns. For all of the things in life have come to men and women who had the capacity to think, to imagine, and to make their dreams come true. When you've become thoroughly conscious of the fact that mind is the only creative principle, that it is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, and that you can consciously come into harmony with this omnipotence through your power of thought, then you will have taken a long step in the right direction. The next step is to place yourself in position to receive this power. As it is omnipresent, it must be within you. We know that this is so because we know that all power is from within, but it must be developed, unfolded, cultivated, and in order to do this, we must be receptive. And this receptivity is acquired just as physical strength is gained by exercise. The law of attraction will certainly and unerringly bring to you the conditions, environment, and experiences in life corresponding with your habitual characteristic, predominant mental attitude. Not what you think once in a while when you're in church or have just read a good book, but your predominant mental attitude is what counts. You can't entertain weak, harmful, negative thoughts 10 hours a day and expect to bring about beautiful, strong, and harmonious conditions by 10 minutes of strong, positive, creative thought. Real power comes from within. All power that anybody can possibly use is within man, only waiting to be brought into visibility by his first recognizing it and then affirming it as his, working it into his consciousness until he becomes one with it. Now, people say they desire abundant life, and so they do. But so many interpret this to mean that if they will exercise their muscles or breathe scientifically, eat certain foods in certain ways, drink so many glasses of water every day of just a certain temperature, keep out of drafts, <laughs> they will attain the abundant life they seek. Now, the result of such methods is but indifferent. However, when a man awakens to the truth and affirms his oneness with all life, he finds that he takes on the clear eye, the elastic step, the vigor of youth, he finds that he has discovered the source of all power. All mistakes are but the mistakes of ignorance. Knowledge gaining and consequent power is what determines growth and evolution. The recognition and demonstration of knowledge is what constitutes power. And this power is spiritual power, and this spiritual power is the power which lies at the heart of all things. It is the soul of the universe. This knowledge is the result of man's ability to think. Thought is therefore the germ of man's conscious evolution. When man ceases to advance in his thoughts and ideals, 
His forces immediately begin to disintegrate, and his countenance gradually registers these changing conditions. Successful men make it their business to hold ideals of the conditions which they wish to realize. They constantly hold in mind the next step necessary to the ideal for which they are striving. Thoughts are the materials with which they build, and the imagination is their mental workshop. Mind is the ever-moving force with which they secure the persons and circumstances necessary to build their success structure, and imagination is the matrix in which all great things are fashioned. If you've been faithful to your ideal, you will hear the call when circumstances are ready to materialize your plans, and results will correspond in the exact ratio of the fidelity to your ideal. The ideal steadily held is what predetermines and attracts the necessary conditions for its fulfillment. It is thus that you may weave a garment of spirit and power into the web of your entire existence. It is thus that you may lead a charmed life and be forever protected from all harm. It is thus that you may become a positive force whereby conditions of opulence and harmony may be attracted to you. This is the leaven which is gradually permeating the general consciousness and is largely responsible for the conditions of unrest which are everywhere evident. In the last part, you created a mental image. You brought it from the invisible into the visible. This week I want you to take an object and follow it back to its origination. See of what it really consists. If you do this, you will develop imagination, insight, perception, and sagacity. These come not by the superficial observation of the multitude, but by a keen analytical observation which sees below the surface. It is the few who know that the things which they see are only effects and understand the causes by which these effects were brought into existence. Take the same position as heretofore and visualize a battleship. See the grim monster floating on the surface of the water. There appears to be no life anywhere about. All is silence. You know that by far the largest part of the vessel is underwater out of sight. You know that the ship is as large and as heavy as a twenty-story skyscraper. You know that there are hundreds of men ready to spring to their appointed task instantly. You know that every department is in charge of able, trained, skilled officials who have proven themselves competent to take charge of this marvelous piece of mechanism. You know that although it lies apparently oblivious to everything else, it has eyes which see everything for miles around, and nothing is permitted to escape its watchful vision. You know that while it appears quiet, submissive, and innocent, it is prepared to hurl a steel projectile weighing thousands of pounds at an enemy many miles away. This and much more you can bring to mind with comparatively no effort whatsoever. But how did the battleship come to be where it is? How did it come into existence in the first place? All of this you want to know if you're a careful observer. Now follow the great steel plates through the foundries. See the thousands of men employed in their production. Go still further back and see the ore as it comes from the mine. See it loaded on barges or cars. See it melted and properly treated. Go back still further and see the architect and engineers who planned the vessel. Let the thought carry you back still further in order to determine why they planned the vessel. You'll see that you're now so far back that the vessel is something intangible. It no longer exists. It is now only a thought that exists in the brain of the architect. But from where did the order of plan come? Probably from the Secretary of Defense. But probably this vessel was planned long before the war was thought of, and the Congress had to pass a bill appropriating the money. Possibly there was opposition and speeches for or against the bill. Now whom do these congressmen represent? Well, they represent you and me so that our line of thought begins with the battleship and ends with ourselves, and we find in the last analysis that our own thought is responsible for this and many other things of which we seldom think. And a little further reflection will develop the most important fact of all. 
and that is, if someone had not discovered the law by which this tremendous mass of steel and iron could be made to float upon the water, instead of immediately going to the bottom of the sea, the battleship could not have come into existence at all. This law is that the specific gravity of any substance is the weight of any volume of it, compared with an equal volume of water. The discovery of this law revolutionized every kind of ocean travel, commerce, and warfare, and it made the existence of the battleship, aircraft carriers, and cruise ships possible. You'll find exercises of this kind invaluable. When the thought has been trained to look below the surface, everything takes on a different appearance. The insignificant becomes significant. The uninteresting, interesting. The things which we suppose to be of no importance are seen to be the only really vital things in existence. Here's a message called, Look to This Day. For it is life, the very life of life. In its brief course lie all the verities and realities of your existence. The bliss of growth, the glory of action, the splendor of beauty. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow is only a vision. But today well lived makes every yesterday a dream of happiness, and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day. Well, that's from the Sanskrit. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Charles Honnell. If you're enjoying the content and would like to help the podcast grow, you can support us by subscribing or making a small donation through the link in the show notes. As a subscriber, you will also gain access to exclusive episodes. Thank you for being a member of the Resilient Mind community.